Welcome to Dr. Waffle and Friends, a podcast where we share personal writing and then chat about it. And now for the reading. There is no small talk, only small talkers. A couple of months ago, my spouse Scott and I were out walking with our friends W and J when we passed a sprightly older woman, maybe in her early 70s, with a dapper male companion. The woman was wielding what looked like cross-country skiing poles, stabbing purposefully at the concrete ahead of her as she strode along. Oh, how neat, I cried as they passed. That looks really fun. The older couple immediately stopped and started chatting with me. The woman explained that it was called Nordic walking. I asked several questions and learned that the dapper gentleman was actually the pole-using woman's Nordic walking coach. He gave me his business card, and I told him I might give him a call. Nota bene, I have not called him, nor did I have any intention of calling him. It was just a thing I said to be nice. This becomes important later. When we were done talking, I looked up to see that Scott and W were hanging on the periphery of the chat circle, and Jay was a speck in the distance on the path ahead. When we caught up to him, he said, Yeah, I was just reminded of what it's like to go out anywhere in public with D. It was kindly and even affectionately said, but it was also clear that he had hightailed it out of there as soon as he sensed that a chit-chat with strangers was in the offing. Scott and W hung around and tacitly condoned the activity, even if they didn't participate enthusiastically. I've been thinking about this range of reactions ever since. I freaking love talking to strangers I encounter throughout the day. I am not kidding when I say that the desire to have more chatting with strangers opportunities was a major reason I left Canada and moved to the Deep South. My friends are all familiar with my periodic social media rants about the unfriendliness of Vancouver and how people there don't greet you when you pass them on the street. During my 13 years in the city, I launched several one-person campaigns to forcibly reform my neighborhood. I would resolve to make eye contact with everyone I passed on the street and offer a cheery hello no matter what the response. When you look up quixotic in the dictionary, there is a little picture of me greeting strangers on the streets of East Van with steely-eyed resolve. The same picture is also next to the entry for disheartening. The standard reaction from my hapless salutationees was a startled double-take followed by a lowered gaze and quickened step. In the end, I conceded that a single extrovert cannot change the culture of an entire metropolitan area, and I moved to Mississippi. But my love of stranger contact doesn't stop at greeting people on the street. I also insist on exchanging pleasantries with anyone who sells, buys, or processes anything for or from me. How is your day going? Has it been busy lately? Any fun plans for the weekend? These are all ways to get a conversation going with a barista or grocery store clerk if they don't initiate one first. Sure, sometimes they grunt in annoyance and then I back off. I'm not a sociopath. But I guesstimate that at least nine times out of ten there's a cheery response, and for the next one to three minutes the person serving me and I exchange light banter as we bob in a little bubble of connection, our brains pleasantly awash in feel-good neurochemicals. In the recent self-help blockbuster Burnout, Authors Emily and Amelia Nagoski argue that for our reptile brains, casual but friendly social interaction is the first sign that the world is a safe place. They cite an experiment in which researchers directed bus and train commuters to either connect with their seatmates or remain distant. Participants reported a more positive and no less productive experience when they connected than when they did not. For me, the lack of daily chit-chat is one of the low-grade, nagging reasons along with Zoom fatigue, mask-fogged glasses, and the tyranny of the legging, that the pandemic has been so wearying. 
I'm only slowly coming to understand that for the past two and a half years, the universe has been withholding my daily brain drug, and I've been in a kind of slow-motion withdrawal. But we don't need newfangled neurology research to tell us that chatting with strangers is good for us. Here is George Eliot over 160 years ago in her first novel, Adam Bede. It is more needful that I should have a fiber of sympathy connecting me with that vulgar citizen who weighs out my sugar, more needful that my heart should swell with loving admiration at some trait of gentle goodness in the faulty people who sit at the same hearth with me, or in the clergymen of my own parish, than at the deeds of heroes whom I shall never know except by hearsay. Eliot was, of course, being gently ironic in her use of the word vulgar. She recognized that most of us tend to ignore, instrumentalize, not a word she would use, or even revile the strangers populating our quotidian worlds, but that a concerted practice of sympathetic identification with our fellow earthlings has enormous psychological benefits for us as well as for them. I considered myself lucky to have learned the art of stranger chit-chat from a maestro, my own mother, and to have completed my training under the tutelage of my even more gifted mother-in-law. Of course, when you're growing up, there is not a single thing more irritating than having to stand next to your mother at the drugstore counter, exploding with impatience, annoyance, embarrassment, while she asks the pharmacist about his recent trip to Florida. You feel like you will literally die if this ridiculous old people blather keeps you from getting back to your Atari or Big Wheel for one second longer. But if you are exposed to enough of these interactions as a child, you gradually absorb the rhythms and the rules. They gradually begin to feel normal and even necessary until the fateful day when you decide to try one out for yourself. Just like a neophyte gambler hitting a jackpot on the first try, you will immediately be hooked on stranger chat if your initial attempt is at all satisfying. And unless you happen to hit someone on a bad day, or you happen to live in Vancouver, chances are it will go well. People really do like to chat, even more than they think they do. As talented a gabber as my mother was, however, she couldn't hold a candle, no one could, to the sheer brilliance of my mother-in-law. Lynn could, and did, charm the pants off of everyone she met, whether it was the newsagent selling her a lottery ticket, a nurse taking her blood pressure, or her son's new girlfriend. For a Tyro chit-chat artist like me, running errands with Lynn and observing her in action was like trailing Mr. Miyagi around the supermarket. On one memorable occasion, during the weekend of Scott's and my wedding, she ran to the corner store on a quick errand and managed to snag a marriage proposal from a gentleman waiting in line next to her. Yet she was definitely not a flirt. She simply enveloped everyone she met so snugly in a warm mantle of friendly kindness that she made it easy to forget you hadn't known her your entire life. Scott and I have logged a fair number of hours analyzing Lynn's staggering charm and have come up with a few theories. Part of it was her accent, an amalgam of 1950s New Zealand English and BBC received pronunciation that managed somehow to sound plummy and warm-hearted at the same time. Second was her habit of calling absolutely everyone darling, while really meaning it. I remember visiting her after her hip surgery and watching her work the hospital staff, whose harried faces would light up when Lynn addressed them. Darling, could you just pass me that crossword? Darling, I'm sorry to trouble you, but could I have another pillow? Thank you so much, darling. Lynn was in the hospital for about a week after her operation, and by the time she was discharged had received a marriage proposal from the gentleman in the room next door. We could never definitively decide whether she was a Machiavellian genius or if it was all perfectly unconscious, and that, of course, was part of the appeal. When she darlinged you, by gum, you felt like a darling. The third and most important element of Lynn's small-talk genius was that she was genuinely interested in everyone she spoke to. You can't fake this part. 
When she asked the darling in the checkout line next to her how they were feeling that day, she actually wanted to know, would listen and pay attention to the answer, and ask follow-up questions to extend the conversation. And this is where Lynn parted ways from the day-trippers and dilettantes who merely dabble in stranger badinage, including my own mother. As a true artist of small talk, Lynn recognized that the goal is not simply to pass the time or make an instrumental interaction go down a little easier, although those are both beneficial side effects. The real goal is to attempt, for a few precious moments, to stave off the darkness. In the recent essay, Your English is So Good, David Sedaris lets loose on the superficiality of most daily interactions. The fact is, unless we're with friends or family, we're all like talking dolls, endlessly repeating the same trite and tiresome lines. Hello, how are you? Hot enough out there? Don't work too hard. I object to these questions, not because they're personal, but because they're not. I don't need a 15-minute conversation, just some human interaction. It can be had, and easily. A gesture, a joke, something that says, I live in this world too. I think of it as a switch that turns someone from a profession to a person. I felt a shock of recognition when I first read that passage because it's precisely how I feel about stranger chit-chat. I am more than happy to whip through the standard script. Beautiful day, it sure is. Enjoy it while it lasts. There's a snowstorm, heat wave on the way, wry chuckle, with anyone and everyone I encounter. But I particularly cherish the chances I get to have a more off-the-track, quirky conversation. I think of it as a kind of six degrees of separation for small talk. How many moves will it take me to get from, it sure is busy in here, to, it's because I'm terrified of the dark? It doesn't necessarily have to be some huge deep thing, although bonus if it is. It just has to be different. It has to be human. For example, a few months ago I was sitting on my front porch reading a book for class when a new mailman came up the front walk carrying two packages. He was having an animated conversation through his headphones, but as soon as he spotted me, he cried out, Well, hello there. I hope you don't mind if I pull you in here. I'm doing an online seminar, and we're just talking about how difficult it is to help people if they don't want help. Yes, that's definitely true, I replied. I mean, let's say you've done well for yourself, and progressed beyond your place of origin, and you want to help family or friends left behind. You can't make them accept help. I completely agree, I replied. You can offer and be open, but you can't force anyone. It's like, let's say there was some water, and you were trying to get a dog to drink it. No, that doesn't work because dogs will always drink water. But like a pig, maybe, or a goat. You could put water in front of a pig or a goat, but it won't drink it just because you put it there. Yes, I responded, thinking furiously to myself, should I tell him about the expression for this phenomenon that already exists? Yes, you're absolutely right. A pig or a goat will always just do what it wants to do. You understand, the mailman cried joyfully. Yes, I think I do. Well, thank you for talking to me today. You too. Have a great rest of your day. Now, don't get me wrong. There were some missed opportunities here. If the mailman and I had been physically closer together and not shouting across my front lawn, I probably would have followed up his initial query with a more direct question or two, perhaps shared a story from my own life and tacitly invited him to do the same. He was a young black man in Mississippi, so I could only imagine the experiences that lay behind his, let's say you've done well for yourself. Maybe I would have discovered that he didn't want to share anything more personal, and that would have been fine too. And perhaps I would have realized I'd overcommitted myself and bitten off more than I wanted to chew. This can happen in the South. A memorable incident comes to mind wherein I was trapped for over an hour in the doorway of a chatty octogenarian while out canvassing. 
But if it had gone any differently, I wouldn't have had the delightful experience of watching someone single-handedly auto-generate a cliché out of thin air. The larger point, though, is that even in the space of a few minutes, a genuine connection can be made. Even if I never did learn the details of the mailman's life struggle, we still shared a moment of musing over the proud stubbornness of the friends, family, pigs, and goats in our lives. Our heads were filled with our own thoughts and memories, but there was a glowing gossamer thread of understanding, stretching down the porch steps and across the overgrown lawn, that connected us for just a minute. And that's all any kind of emotional connection is when you get right down to it. Even with our closest friends, bonding moments are partly shared and partly private, partly true understanding and partly projection. Just because a moment of connection is brief, or you never see the person again, does not necessarily mean it's superficial, or pointless, or meaningless. Sometimes it's even profound, and sometimes you remember it for the rest of your life. The thing is, you never know. Until you look into the eyes of the human being waiting next to you at the DMV, or handing back your credit card, or standing on your front stoop, and you launch your little harpoon of chit-chat and wait to see if it lands, you just never know. Where will you catch your next shining thread of sympathetic vibration? Who will you commune with for a few burnished moments? What pigs or goats will you gently help to see the error of their ways? Hello, Deanna. Hello, Tanya. So excited to be here for the first episode of our podcast. I am pretty excited too. Yeah, it's, this is going to be fun. I am excited to chat with you and share with you thoughts and ramblings and all that good stuff. Yeah. And so this is our idea that, you know, we'll read something and then we'll get a chance to talk about it. Maybe you could start by talking about what is your relationship with writing and has it changed over the years? Wow. Um, yeah, that's a biggie. <laughs> I did this kind of creative writing we all did when we were in elementary school and grade school, back before you're taught that you have to be great and perfect at something in order to continue doing it. And I just did it for fun, like we all did. But I remember when I was about 10, 11, 12, somewhere in that age, deciding I was a writer, like with a capital W, like, oh, this is what I was going to do. And this is what I'm good at. And I enjoy it so much. And I'd gotten so much positive feedback from it, for, from teachers. And I actually majored in creative writing at Penn, where, which is where we know each other from, which I guess we're going to get to in a little while. I majored in creative writing as, as a concentration in English major as an undergrad. And I was trained as a poet. And then I... <laughs> Uh, I vividly remember having a conversation with Greg Janikian, who was uh, my poetry professor at the time, and talking about grad school. And I said, I want to go to grad school. I want to do this for a living. I want to be a professor. But And then I kind of looked around his office and I said, I want to be an like an English professor, a literature professor, rather than a creative writing professor. And he, because he was like in this really crappy, shabby little office. And I had this idea that like, oh, I'm going to go get a PhD because I want to like have a real office and be a real professor. And I'm sure it was horribly insulting to him at the time, but you know how undergrads are. I just said what was on my mind. And he kind of laughed and he said, okay, I see what you're saying. But, and then he said, you'll stop writing. He said, if you go, if you get a PhD in English, if you go and do literature as your PhD, you won't write poems anymore. You might write them every once in a while, but it won't, you're not going to concentrate on them the same way. And he was wow. right. He was, I know, he was absolutely right. And I think about that conversation all the time. Um, yeah, I went off and did a literature PhD and became a regular old English professor and wrote poems every once in a while. And like everybody else, I guess during the pandemic, I had a sort of a, I want to do something different. I really miss writing creative nonfiction. So I just started this little project of writing an essay a week and putting them up on a blog and some tens of people read them every, 
every week when I publish them. So yeah, that's the that's the trajectory. But I'm I'm enjoying it a lot. I'm having a lot of fun being back in the saddle and actually kind of having a discipline of writing every day and doing something that's giving me pleasure. Yeah, it's great. Oh, that's marvelous. And I am so happy that you started writing and that I could read your writing because I think it's absolutely marvelous. Um, well, thank it, you. Yeah, I find it delightful to read. But as I said to you a little while back, I said, you know, the the big problem that I have where I don't keep up with your essays is that I have to read them with my eyeballs. And <laughs> so what I really want is for you to read them aloud so I can hear them. And that sort of led us down this path to where we are today. Um, so, so I put it out there, the idea that, you know, if we did a podcast, then I could hear you read them aloud and we could talk about them. Uh, but you said yes. And so so what what made you say yes to the idea of the podcast? <laughs> um, good question. I guess I completely sympathize with the eyeballs thing because I am my eyeballs are tired. I mean, they like I get it. I have been really, really sick of reading and looking at screens all the time and moving my eyes back and forth across different kinds of material. And it, it's gotten so much worse in the pandemic. So I was like, yeah, that sounds kind of fun. I've, I've started listening to podcasts a lot more since having to spend so much time on the screen for work. And uh, I love listening to people read and talk about their thoughts and have fun conversations and tell dramatic stories. And um, and so I thought, yeah, that sounds great. I would love to be able to kind of bring that to people. If they enjoy reading these essays and spending five minutes a week reading these little natterings, then maybe it'll be even more fun to listen to them for 15 minutes a week. So, and I, that was part of it. And then the other, the big part, the main part was I just thought the idea of having a chat with you every couple of weeks about writing sounded so, so fun and a way to kind of get you know, get back in touch and, and be in each other's lives more on a more regular basis. So that was a big part of it too. Yes. I hope everyone else is enjoying our bonding experience as much as we are. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> I like, I mean, I like other people's bonding experiences. So, you know, that's one of the things that's fun about podcasts, right? Is uh, every once in a while you come across one where you feel like uh, the people really like each other and know each other. Um, I was just listening to maintenance phase have you listened to maintenance phase mm -mm. it's so it's really great and uh, uh, it's it's oh i forget his name now but the guy who was on you're wrong about now does this other podcast called maintenance phase which refers to it started out as a kind of anti-diet culture thing hmm. um which the joke maintenance phase, right? Whenever you go on a diet, it always says like, oh, you starve yourself to death for two months and then there's the maintenance phase. And the, the joke is, of course, you always regain all the weight on the maintenance phase and that's why diets are ridiculous. But they they sort of branched out and they talk about a lot of other kinds of things too. But anyway, the point is they're extremely charming and they clearly really like each other. And that's one of the things that's so fun about listening to them. So I thought, yeah, I'd love to do something like that. With my Hooray. friend Tanya. <laughs> I'm so glad yeah. that you said yes. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you you talked about, you know, during the pandemic, you started doing this writing. What's your process for writing these essays like? Um, it's actually really, I don't want to say regimented, but um, it's a, I, I sort of set it as a discipline for myself, right? Um, I write for 30 minutes every morning for six days, and then I publish, you know, put them up on my blog on the seventh day, just like God. <laughs> um, and so 30 minutes a day. So that means every essay takes uh, three hours, exactly three hours to write. Um, now that was the initial discipline. And I stuck with that for about six months. And then 
my mother-in-law, the one I just was talking about in that essay, Lynn, she mm-hmm. died in October mm-hmm. and I kind of went off the rails a little bit. And since then I've been doing like one a month to one every two to two weeks, sometimes every week, but it's, I've stopped doing the perfect discipline of one every week. But mm-hmm. when I do, that's what I do. I try to really not spend a huge amount of time working on them because I want it to be, I'm a perfectionist. And so I would never, ever, ever show anybody anything unless I had a deadline for myself. So that was kind of the idea behind it. These are not finished, polished essays. They're like what I would call mini essays. And maybe some of the ones that I like better, I'll work on more later and turn into longer pieces, but these are sort of less formal. And so do you that's the start idea. out just writing from beginning to end? Do you have sort of an outline of what the arc is going to be? kind of some of each like I I don't know if most people are like this but I write very fluently in the sense that I just write I think in paragraphs or I think in very organized ways and so I don't usually it just kind of comes out that way so what I'll usually do is just write um I know that sounds kind of, I don't know, conceited or something, but that's just, I mean, it's just easy. Like, I know that sounds awful. This is easy for me, but, (laughs) but it is, that's why I like it. If it was hard, I would be doing something else for fun. Right. I mean, this is actually fun. Um, I jot like a little, like the day one, right. Of the new week, I'll have some ideas for an essay and then I'll jot down uh, a few things roughly in the order that I want to flush them out. And then I just do that for a half an hour a day for the rest of the week. And then I end up with, with an essay. I guess the other thing I should have said is like this particular little project that I'm calling the 52 mini essays project. The initial idea was I solicited topics from friends on social media, but also just friends in person too. And I came up with 52 topics Mm -hmm. and I was going to write one essay a week. And I've sort of abandoned that because I ended up having other ideas for things I wanted to write or not all the topics were, some of them were kind of very similar to each other, whatever. So I sort of abandoned that, but I do pretty about half the essays are a topic that a friend has given me so yeah I dedicate the essay to that person and you know and then just sort of use that as a launching point for the for the thing that follows well and I appreciate your honesty about what your process is like you you know if it it does it's not the same for everyone and if it Mm -mm. flows easily for you that's fantastic. And I, I think one of the things I love about your essays is that they sound like you. Uh, they're very much your voice. And so maybe some of that is because it flows so easily from you. Mm. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It, it sort of feels like talking to me. Like they, I, I picture them as conversational. Well, that's not strictly speaking true. They're also... One of the things that's been interesting about trying to read these out loud, which is not what I was originally picturing doing when I wrote them, is, first of all, there's a lot of footnotes. I didn't read the footnotes, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, I did. I was trying to figure out how do I incorporate the footnotes, and then I just decided to bag them. But if you read the essay online, you'll see I just I put stuff in footnotes if they're, you know, that's an academic tick. But I also kind of like reading footnotes in creative nonfiction or in informal essays because I think that's just kind of fun. And usually they try to be pretty funny um, or give you some extra little jokey information about whatever it was I was just talking about. But I also realized, too, that I I use a lot of parentheses and dashes, and it's kind of hard to read those things out loud and to convey the sense. So I do think even though they flow easily, they are very uh, written in that sense that I'm, mm. I'm picturing the effect of someone reading them. I'm imagining like the ideal person. I'm imagining them reading these things on the page and 
pausing at this M dash or going to the mm-hmm. bottom of the page for this footnote. And so the reading aloud part is interesting because it's not the same as it's not the same thing I was picturing. And so I wonder if people who write at like, you know, David Sedaris, for example, whom I invoked in that essay, who clearly spends so much of his time reading his stuff out loud. I wonder if he, his writing process is different if he's thinking about the way it sounds when he's writing rather than thinking about the way it, it's echoing in someone's head who's reading it. Right. I'm glad you brought up the footnotes because I was going to ask about that. You know, you make mm-hmm. extensive use of footnotes and your footnotes <laughs> are delightful uh, to read. And so uh, how is it sort of losing pieces of things as you read? And at the same time, there are things that you can maybe add in your inflection and and all of that. Or maybe you feel like you're you're not adding exactly what you would want, you know, uh, when you're reading mm. it aloud. So I'm kind of curious. Um, yeah, the footnotes, I guess, just recently when I started experimenting with recording these things and trying to figure out what I was going to do about them and decided just to lose them, I guess I like the idea of there being a little extra something for the people who bother to read them, mm. <laughs> you know, for the, for the people who material. really do want to, yeah, exactly, exactly. If the people want to run their eyeballs across the text, um, there's like extra little fun bits or whatever. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, the, the footnotes, it's so funny because when I started this, I guess it's been, yeah, well over a year now. So I started May 2021 writing the weekly essays. And the first couple, my partner, Scott, totally clocked me. He's like, oh, this is Lindy West's voice. Because <laughs> mm. I had just read a whole collection of her essays and she uses a lot of footnotes and they are extremely funny. I mean, she's screamingly funny. I wish I could be so funny. Um, but it's true. I was kind of influenced. You know, I don't know if this happens to you, but when you're reading something, and then if you if you're writing at the same time, that person's voice doesn't change you a lot, but inflects a little bit, or you kind of get that person's voice in your head, and it can kind of influence what's coming out at the time. I found that a lot with writing poetry, for sure. Like whatever I was immersed in, or whatever poetry I was reading, I ended up not imitating the person, but just the the voice is in there. You're hearing it, and then it's kind of coming out when you're writing too. So yeah, so I feel like the first few essays you can hear Lindy West's voice <laughs> in them. And that, and the footnotes came from that because she uses so many footnotes and I just, and I use footnotes anyway. I've always done it. I wasn't copying her exactly, but I definitely use them in a way that she does. And I've just kind of kept up with that. So yeah, I guess I kind of mm-hmm. like the idea of them being something extra that you could, mm-hmm. you could enjoy if you look at the written version. That's great. That's great. So let, let's talk a little bit about this essay in particular. Um, mm-hmm. What was the impetus for this essay? Was this one of the topics that other someone else came up for, for you? or I don't think it was. No, it wasn't. No. Um, this was one, just an idea I had myself. And I think, it, yeah, it really did start with that exact incident that I, was, that I began with where Scott and I are, we're visiting our friend. I'll just, their, their names are Wendy and Joel. The joke of calling them W and J is like, oh, to protect the innocent. But of course, there's nothing really, <laughs> there's nothing bad in the story. So Wendy and Joel. Um, and that it happened exactly as I, I fudge a lot of stories. Um, like I massage the one with the mailman a little bit, even though the part about the pig and the goat is absolutely true. But um, the Wendy and Joel thing happened exactly the way I wrote about it. And I just thought it was so funny. Like I looked up and like literally Joel's like just like Wiley Coyote, you know, there's like a little, a little puff of smoke where he'd been on the path next to us and he just couldn't get out of there fast enough. And so, yeah, that it, it happened exactly as I said, I, I started thinking like why he's a very um, sociable 
person, you know? So, but why does he not like talking to strangers the way that I do? And what is it about talking to strangers particularly that doesn't necessarily track onto being sociable in other contexts, right? So people who like love parties or have lots of friends don't necessarily like talking to strangers. Um, but so I thought it was kind of a different, a different animal. And what was it that made me in particular love it so much and people who like doing it, what is it about it that's pleasurable for them? Mm. Revisiting this essay now and reading it aloud and, you know, just um, reading it at all, are there things that you don't like as much about it as mm. when you originally wrote it or anything you'd want to change at this point? Hmm. Yeah. I guess I would say about this, about any essay I've written during this little year-long project thing is because they're meant to be like things that I write fast and things that I'm just getting some kind of ideas down on the page and then maybe I'll revisit them later or the ones that I like or whatever. I think sometimes they don't, I, they can be a little, I don't want to say the word glib, but a little fat, a little fast and breezy, breezy, let's say breezy rather than glib. Um, and so I think there's sometimes there's kind of missed opportunities for, uh, digging deeper and, and making them a little bit more. I mean, some of the essays really are like some of them, I have like an essay about my panic disorder and stuff that, you know, things that are much more personal. And I kind of like those essays better. Although I think they all have a place. Like sometimes you don't really want to hear about somebody's panic disorder. You just want to, <laughs> you want to hear a jokey story about a mailman who doesn't know the expression, lead a horse to water and make it drink. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah. So I think they all have different places, but and maybe this isn't one that is really conducive to being turned into a deeper, bigger, more philosophical, more personal essay. Uh, they can't, I don't think they all can be, but, but I guess that I would just say in general, I do feel looking at the earliest ones that I wrote, I kind of feel mm -hmm. like, yeah, I could, I could make this about something a little bit more real or a little bit more intense or a little bit more personal. This is a little facile or something. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I I like that you have levels though, that you have different <laughs> modes yeah. of mm -hmm. writing and so I I think I think that's actually a lovely thing. So yeah. So is there something that you love about this essay? The mailman story. I mean, basically, yeah. When as soon as I realized like so the the essay started definitely with the incident or the anecdote of Wendy and Joel and wondering, you know, why Joel was like, oh, my God, get me out of here. Um, and he really did say the thing, too, like, oh, yeah, now because we hadn't hung out for a long time because of the pandemic. And he really did say, I suddenly remembered what it's like to hang out with T, <laughs> which <laughs> I, I was actually and he was he really was saying it kindly, like affectionately, like, oh, this funny thing about you that I remember now is that we have to stop and talk to everybody. Um, but it also like. I mean, I, I liked that image of myself that he, that I saw reflected in him by saying that, right. Or I probably mm -hmm. wouldn't have wanted to write an essay about it, or maybe I would have, I don't know. But, uh, but I was like, oh, I like that about me too. <laughs> right. So let me narcissistically write an essay about it. Um, but, <laughs> but I mean, I do, I like, I both like talking to strangers and I like people who like to talk to strangers. And so therefore I like about myself that I like to talk to strangers. So that makes sense. It like fits in with a kind of image of myself that I, that I like, you know, it's ego. It's what is the word ego syntonic as opposed to ego dystonic. Mm. Um, so I like that. I like that story, but I also, when I, as soon as I realized, Oh, I could get the mailman incident into this story, like that actually fits together in a way where I'm going to make these two anecdotes fit in the same piece. I was, mm -hmm. I was really happy with that. Cause I, I just love that story so much. It was so 
he was so adorable, the snail man. He was like super cheerful and, you know, really young. Uh, I sort of spun this whole fantasy about him that maybe he'd like decided to start. He changed his career during the pandemic and was like, I want to be outside more or <laughs> I'm not getting enough exercise from my current job or I just or maybe I love talking to strangers. So I'm going to become a mailman. I don't know, whatever it was. But I just I came up with this idea in my head that he had changed careers and, you know, and was this new mailman excited about his job and excited about, you know, whatever, talking to people. And um, but yeah, he really was. He had the headphones on. He was listening to some kind of seminar. And all of that is exactly the way it happened. And I just couldn't believe it. I was like, I, I mean, I don't know if this happens to everybody. Maybe it just happens to people who are constantly walking around in the world thinking about how they're going to turn every single thing that happens to them into an essay. But <laughs> <laughs> but it was one of those moments where I was like, I can't, I kind of can't believe this is happening. It's like, as it's unfolding, I'm like, is this really happening? Is he really actually generating the cliche himself without knowing that it's already an expression? Um, and I was so delighted that, you know, that that's what happened and that we had this interaction that, yeah. So I guess those are the two things I like about it the most. One, that it gets to, it gives me a chance to humble brag about something like, oh, my friend Joel was like... <laughs> you know, so annoyed or whatever that I like to talk to strangers, but it, so it gives me a chance to talk about something I like about myself. And also it, it gave me a chance to talk about this mailman who I just, I loved. And he's never, he hasn't been back. That's the other thing. He, I haven't seen him again. So I think he was like a sub or something, mm. but, um, but yeah, I think about him a lot. <laughs> it, it's wonderful. I, one of my favorite things about this essay is that you describe all of that and you never, you don't also do not actually say you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. And exactly. so I love how you talk around that in such a way that it's so obvious what you're talking about, but your ability to withhold that and write about <laughs> it, I, I think is amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really quite brilliant. Well, that was probably a moment in when it was happening, I was probably thinking to myself, if I just restrain myself and don't tell him that there's an expression for this, then I'll have a really good story. <laughs> so I am, I am, e even before I started this project, this writing, these little thing, these little essays, I still was always thinking of everything that happened in my life as not necessarily fodder for an essay, but definitely all oh, this, this will be a story. Like I'm always like, you know, we're trying to memorize things that happened to me and, and turn them into things I can tell at parties or whatever or tell my friends. So yeah, I was definitely thinking to myself, this is a great story. Don't yes. don't fuck it up by telling I, him the expression. <laughs> I, I understand that tendency. I, yeah. I share that quality with you. <laughs> I know. I love sort of thinking, oh, this is going to be a great story to tell at a dinner mm -hmm. party. Yep. Yep. So it's I'm a good way to get through something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I love about your writing is your use of detail and, and simile. So, mm. so when you say at one point, just like a neophyte gambler hitting a jackpot on the first try, <laughs> and that's so great. And another point you say, like trailing Mr. Miyagi around the supermarket. And I'm like, it's so perfect. And also I realize I love the details that you include that are so, I don't know, we're both like early Gen X, you know, we're, we're mm -hmm. pretty much the same age. And so you're talking about Ataris and big wheels and, and mm -hmm. Mr. Miyagi. And I think, oh my gosh, this 
it resonates with me so much. And there's this thing that I that I learned about writing, which I think is so counterintuitive, which is that the greater the use of detail, the more people can relate to it. And I always mm-hmm. think that that's the weirdest thing because you'd think, okay, it's a detail, it's this thing only I experience, but other people can for some reason relate to that better if, than if you just say something very general. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you can speak at all to, to how you um, use detail and your awareness of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm super, I think about that all the time. I mean, I think that definitely comes from being trained as a poet, for sure. Mm. The the telling detail, the, you know, the the skunk's head wedged in the sour cream cup. And that's a, <laughs> that's a reference to my favorite poem, <laughs> Skunk Hour by Robert Lowell. But just having, yeah, like, you know, concrete, vivid imagery. Uh, or another thing, it's not related, but it, I mean, it's not the same, but it's related. And that is, I really care about how things sound a lot. I mean, I will fuss and fuss and fuss and fuss over scansion rhythm of sound effects in a in a clause the way I would in a poem. And I think that's really mm-hmm. important. And it, I appreciate that when I see that in other people's writing too, other people's prose writing, that it's clear that they've really, that they care about how this sounds. Even though, if, even if you're not reading it out loud or listening to it out loud, you hear it in your head when you're reading. At least that's the way. I mean, I always tell my students they should be reading poetry out loud anyway. I don't know how many of them do, but uh, in order to fully appreciate it. So yeah, so I think those two things go together, both the sound and then the use of concrete detail and imagery. I sometimes catch myself writing a phrase that's sort of abstract. And then I, I, it's almost a tick now. I just stop and I'm like, is there a concrete way I can say this? Is there like an image I can use? Is there a vivid detail that I can bring in here rather than just saying something general or abstract? So, but yeah, I think that that's, that's poetry training, right? That's, and I, um, I appreciate having gotten that training because I think it makes your prose so much better too. Yeah, I love that. Is there a concrete detail or vivid image that I can use to express that? Mm -hmm. I I think that's a wonderful question for all of us to ask ourselves Mm -hmm. with our writing. Mm -hmm. So great. Okay, Mm -hmm. now I have a question about one of the footnotes, actually. And so, (laughs) uh, you know, just for the people who do actually go to the footnotes. um, This is this is your bonus content. (laughs) (laughs) All of you eyeballs, people. (laughs) (laughs) So you say, I also insist on exchanging pleasantries with anyone who sells, buys or processes anything (laughs) for or from me. And then in the footnote, you say, if you don't get this reference, DM me immediately. After I'm done weeping with sadness on your behalf, I will introduce you to the single greatest movie of the 1980s. And I am shocked that I can't figure out what movie you're talking about. It's Say Anything with John Cusack. Do you remember the... um, Do you remember the scene where he's meeting his uh, girlfriend? So, okay, this is so embarrassing. I always get mixed up. It's Ioni Sky. Yeah. I always get confused. Daphne Zuniga's in the one where they drive across the country and they both have like really anodyne. The sure thing. The The sure Mm -hmm. thing. That's it. Right. So the sure thing is the Daphne Zuniga one. So it is Ioni Sky. So he meets when he meets her father at, and he's sitting at the dinner table and the father asks him what he wants to do for a living. And he says, they want, 
he says he says he wants to be a kickboxer, which is the wrong answer because the father is very ambitious for his daughter and wants her to, you know, be with an ambitious young man. And then he says, some, oh, now I'm not going to get it. Str- I'm not going to get it right. Well, this is <laughs> I should have memorized it before if I'd known this question was going to come up. <laughs> but there's a scene where he said and I can never get it exactly right. He says something like, I just know I don't want to buy, process or sell anything. And I don't want to buy anything processed or sold or process anything. So, you know, it's this whole little mini manifesto for exactly that kind of early to mid Gen X ethos, Mm. right? Where we were all, (laughs) I mean, I guess this is probably just an ethos of youth in general. I mean, I'm sure it's probably this true of Gen Zers and younger as well, but, but we, you know, that whole kind of like slacker, we don't really want to buy into the system man um, thing that Gen Xers are famous for. Um, That sort of, you know, Janine Garofalo, and mm-hmm. Ali Sheedy or whoever. I guess I don't. I don't know they were ever in a movie together, but I can picture them in a movie together. Uh, you know, hanging out, smoking pot, and talking about how they don't really want to get sucked into the corporate infrastructure, man. Um, anyway, so that little scene was this little adorable manifesto for that way of looking at the world. And um, yeah, and it's worth going back and watching that movie and ser- at least, or at least, just Google the clip and look at it on YouTube because it's really great. It's a great scene, and John Cusack is so freaking cute in it, and ugh, such a cutie. In our next <laughs> podcast where we watch movies and talk about them, we will yes. revisit that one because I remember not liking that movie, and so now I'm very <gasps> curious. Oh my god, Tanya, you don't like say anything? This is like wow. Okay, this is this is this is big. This yeah. is big. So the the other question that I have is um, you like chit chat and Mm -hmm. you like it in these sort of passing, you know, experiences. Do you talk to the people next to you on the airplane? Oh, that's a really good one. I don't. um, I really don't like talking to people on airplanes because a number of reasons. It feels you're trapped, like you're Mm -hmm. really trapped, like even in a way that you're not trapped on the bus, like if somebody starts talking to you on the bus, you can get up and move. It's a little rude, but you can do it. Or you can get off the bus. You can get off, whatever. You're on a plane. You can't get up and move to another seat or get or get off. <laughs> um, and so I feel like there's a different code there, right? Like I, so many people hate being talked to on the plane. It's such a cliche that it feels like incredibly tone deaf to to engage somebody on a plane because so many people hate it. And it's such a thing mm-hmm. about how people hate it. So that's part of it. Part of it is I'm a fearful flyer. So I'm also usually trying to like swallow like imminent rising panic at any given moment, (laughs) especially during takeoff. So, but that said, I have, I have been known to engage people if I'm flying by myself, if I'm super nervous, I'll try to talk to people just because I'm trying to pretend everything's okay. Mm -hmm. Or I think to myself, let's have a little interchange here because we might die next to each other in a few minutes and I want to know who you are. (laughs) So, but yeah, but in general, I don't, and I don't like it when people talk to me on the plane either because I really feel like it's like there should be a code of ethics for people who likes chit-chatting. So that little part where I said like, if I'll try to talk to a barista or something and if they are not engaging, I will back off. I'm not going to like continue to insist that they talk to me. Yeah. And so I think part of the code of ethics should be, be very careful on a plane because that person is trapped and they can't get away from you. And if they're unhappy about the chit chat they're it's not a cool thing to do to somebody. So that could be yeah. the second rule <laughs> yeah. of stranger chit chat that I'm just making up right now. But yeah. Well, my, my thing on an airplane is 
I think that the time to start the conversation with the person next to you is when the wheels touch down at your destination. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's great. I love it. So how was that for you? <laughs> like Almost like some kind of weird, like stranger sex in a sex club or something, you know, where like you, you break the fourth wall and you're like, <laughs> yeah, finally yeah. thinking of each other as a person or something. I don't know. That was a strange uh, analogy, but yeah, I just... I... <laughs> <laughs> I just had this sudden image of like, wow, we just went through this super intense, weird thing together while pretending not to know each other. Right. Like, and and now and, we, now we can now we can talk. Yes. Yeah. Well, because yeah, it's we limited. Because it's like you know, then there's then there's a limit to it. I yeah. when when I chit chat with people, it's always at Trader Joe's. I mean, the Trader Joe's <laughs> checkout people are known for their chit chat. They'll always talk to you about the products that you're getting, or how's your weekend, or what are you doing, and all that. Mm-hmm. But I love to talk to the other people shopping at Trader Joe's because mm-hmm. I love the product so much that I will just want to walk around and talk to people about how much I love the things that they're getting or, oh, have you tried this? And right. that that's where I am at my most chit-chatty, I think. Well, clearly we have our first sponsor for our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Trader Joe's products. <laughs> Excellent. And also conducive to stranger interaction. Yeah. I mean, I love Trader Joe's too. We So there isn't a Trader Joe's in Vancouver or I, they don't have them in Canada. And so I not only do I love Trader Joe's, but I also, their products took on this kind of mantle of unavailability and, you know, inaccessibility that made them that much more precious. There was a guy who started a, a shop called Pirate Joe's in which he drove mm-hmm. across the border to Bellingham, Washington, and stocked up on Trader Joe's stuff and then <laughs> drove it across the border. And he had a shop. He actually had a store in, I think it was in Point Grey. Um, not that that means anything to the vast majority of people listening to this probably, but for all of you Vancouverites, it was in Point Grey. Yeah, and he just resold Trader Joe's products. And Trader Joe's did uh, try to sue him, but they lost because I guess the Canadian court in which they sued him were like, well, he's not breaking any, he's not, you know, it's not copyright infringement or anything like that. He's, he's openly saying, this is stuff I bought at Trader Joe's and I'm selling it to you for slightly more than I bought it for in order to make a profit. Um, but it was yeah, really popular because we were really starved for, and now I live in Oxford, Mississippi, which also doesn't have a Trader Joe's. And so I'm, I'm, I'm an obsessive. I agree. The salad dressings, cookies, mm, so, so many, many things, things. So, so many, many things. things. Mm. Well, final question I have for you is, is Mm -hmm. there anything that you didn't get to say about yourself more broadly as a writer? I mean, you'll have, you know, all the other episodes to do that as well, or about this (laughs) essay that you didn't get to talk about. I guess the only thing I would want to maybe say, I don't even know if this is something I want to say, but it's something I'm thinking about. And we can always just cut this out later if I don't like it or you don't like it or whatever. Um, And that is, I guess the very first question you asked me about my writing process I suddenly had that wave of feeling like, whoa, what a fraud. You know, there's like, you know what I mean? Like there's so many more famous, accomplished writers who've actually been doing this for a really long time. Who wants to hear about my writing process? And so I kind of had to fight that back. And I was thinking, well, yeah, I mean, I've been, okay. I'm, I am a writer. I have a PhD in English literature and I have been writing scholarly criticism. I have a book um, and I was trained as a poet back in the day and I have, you know, one published poem. Um, So I'm not, I am a writer. It's just that there's this weird divide between, it's not weird, but there's definitely a divide between academic criticism and creative writing. And even though I think of, and so does Oscar Wilde, think of criticism as a kind of an art form. He has this wonderful uh, essay called The Critic as Artist, 
And, and I absolutely believe that. And I think of my own scholarly writing as artistic. Totally. I care about how it sounds and I care about that it's beautiful prose and all of that. It still felt kind of weird to be like, well, I'm not really a writer. I'm just like this person who started doing a blog. But yeah, so I think it's an interesting reaction. I just kind of wanted to put that out there because I think a lot of people feel that way. A lot of people who write feel that way, especially now that people are publishing stuff on blogs and and do and there's so much more access and people are putting their stuff out there that uh, it's kind of hard to think of yourself that way, to, to characterize yourself as a writer with a capital W. So, yeah. I so appreciate you sharing that. Mm-hmm. I, I, well, next episode, we'll get to talk about my relationship with <laughs> writing and there's a lot of <laughs> imposter syndrome in there. So yeah. 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 Um, so I, I think that this, this can be a thread that we can continue to, um, to unravel. Excellent. I love it. Well, thanks so much for Thank sharing you, Tanya. your this writing so and fun. yourself. This was yeah, great. I really enjoyed this a lot. And so, yeah. So till next week, right? When we're going to, I guess we won't give anything away, but you, you have a piece, I think that you're going to share about growing up. I, I and... will, I will be sharing a piece next time. Yes. So yeah. okay. looking forward to it. Thanks so great. much. Okay. Bye. Listeners, if you liked what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and share so more folks can find us. You can follow us on social media at Dr. Waffle Pod, that's Dr. Waffle Pod, or email us at drwafflepod at gmail.com. Check out the show notes for websites and other info. Thanks for listening. <laughs>